Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Stuart Townsend. Stuart offers channel as a service. Stuart, welcome. Hey, Marcus. Thanks for having us. It's, uh, it's great to be on. Excellent. Um, so, Stuart, thank you for uh, coming today. Uh, I'm really interested in your background, first of all. Could you give us 60 to 90 seconds on that, please? Yeah, of course. Stopped me when, when I waffled too much, but basically started life selling steel and then became a, a mature salesperson at some microsystems in my 30s. Built out some startups, programs there, did business development, built out a channel, moved to Oracle, and then spent four to eight years working at two startups. One was a data company selling Twitter's Firehose. And then lastly, I joined Zendesk, built out their channel across EMEA, part of the US, and left three or four years ago to set up my own consultancy. So talk to me about the journey, the transition from direct to indirect sales. I think what you find in the world is that nobody leaves school and says they want to work in channel and become an indirect salesperson. (laughs) (laughs) It's like we all stumble into it and we either love it or hate it. So it started at Sun. I was a a pre-sales guy, moved into sort of direct and then moved into a business development type role within that organization. I still didn't understand how this channel model worked, how third-party vendors were selling our products. So I stumbled into it, but, but cut my teeth with some mature sales guys that were working in channel then and learned the corporate way of, of doing indirect, which is you take a template at the start of the year, you go out to your channel, you do some programs and campaigns, you build some leads and you hit your number or you don't hit your number. And it's the same every year. It's just boring as sin, but you learn really quickly. So that's sort of how I stumbled into it and I've been in there for, I've been doing it for 20 years now. Obviously, I'm a little bit older than 30 now. (laughs) Okay. So if we look at the most common question that you get from founders, which I'm guessing is, what the hell is a channel? Describe what the channel is in terms even I could understand. The way I describe it, it normally comes from founders, like you say, it can be technical founders or sales founders, whatever it is. And I explain to them in its simplest format, you're in channel every day when you go to the supermarket because you're going to buy something from there that has come from a third party. And that's the easiest way to explain it. It's literally, I talked to them about taking their product out to market through a third party. There was a set of salespeople and marketing similar to them and they go and sell it and they make some money on selling licenses or selling services. And that's the best way of describing that reseller model and distributor model. And then we can go deep into integrations and marketplaces, but that, that gives them a flavor of, all right, okay, so my cost of acquisition, I'm paying a third party to for them to incur that cost and get me new customers. I get it now. It doesn't happen as quickly as that. That's a common complaint. Certainly all the work I've done in channel, they're kind of expecting that you wave the magic wand and suddenly materializes and Part of the problem is lack of patience and an unholy rush. So what advice would you give to founders and the board of a company that is considering the channel in terms of expectation management? Yeah, so, so I tend to have that conversation and I tend to work with B2B SaaS companies, normally around sort of 50 people. So it's pretty nimble, but there's still a board or C-level type exec team there. And I say for them to go and look out at the market and see how long it's took for other operators similar to them or, or similar size to grow and build that, that revenue. And you can do that by looking at how their growth goes and when they hired the first channel person and then the impact. But I always sort of caveat and say, you need 12 months to get from a standing start to actually have a program that's functioning and maybe some partners that are contracted on paper to do some activities with you and get them warmed up. And and I always anchor it back to, if you've got direct salespeople and they've got a ramp period, essentially double that because you're going out to a partner who's going to take your product out to market and you're having to sell to them first. You're having to convince them that they'll trust you as a product and that you've got all the right resources in place there to do that. That doesn't happen in the first quarter or two. You're still building your strategy and define what they look like. So I always put a clause and says, if you're looking for something in three months or six months, don't do it. Go for a referral affiliate program, throw some money at marketing. But if you can do it seriously, you need 12 months to actually get some traction in the market and some, some balance. Unless you're totally amazing and it's a problem that everyone wants to sell, then yeah, that's, they're, they're the unicorns. Well, 
My experience is that the channel really requires a very, very different mindset. These are people who are in business for their reasons, not yours. They don't care about you, your company, your products, your services, your quota. And so many vendors, particularly large ones and American and British ones, act as if the vendor is a get out, uh, the, the channel is a get out of sales free card. And that they're basically an unpaid sales force. Why is this so wrong? It's just, I, I don't know. I mean, this is like 20 years of the same message. It's like, basically, direct sales is not ramping as fast as we want it to. We're doing lots of outbound and inbound activities. We've followed all the playbooks and we've got SDRs and we've got BDRs. It's not working. So let's, let's get channeling. And that means in three to six months, the gap is filled. It's the amount of times I have that conversation and just, I, I just have to walk away and smash my head against the wall and shout and scream, just go like, you're just muppets, aren't you? You just do not get what this is. This is, this is a long-term investment to grow your business and drive it forward. But also, you're right, Mark, because in terms of that big-headedness in a sense, it's like we're a big vendor. Why would people not want to sell us? So go and tell that channel partner, that Google partner, whoever it is, to go and sell our product. It's like, no, they get 40 million approaches a day from other vendors to try and sell products. They make decisions strategically of what's best for their business and their salespeople and their operating costs and their growth and margin. They're not interested in us. It's, you know, as a channel manager, director, VP, whatever your title is, you are basically taking a product out to somebody and selling it to them and getting them to buy and board for a long-term partnership. But yeah, it just, oh, I get so annoyed. <laughs> it just doesn't change. It's that mentality of, it is, you're right, it's a get out of jail card. And it passes along to somebody who then takes onus and, and takes the book for it. And when they don't deliver, they get rid of them. They get somebody else in as if they're going to bring a magic bullet in. Again, I think, let, let's talk about, because obviously you're offering channel as a service. In terms of the critical foundations, before you start recruiting partners, what do you need to do internally to, when you look in the mirror to make sure that you are set up to be a good partner? Yeah, so for me, I always sort of look at the aspect of we just need to start with a strategy, understand what the whole organization has as resources and what does it want to get and how fast does it want to get there and make sure we're aligned. If we don't have that strategy and definition of, you know, what does a partner look like? Is it a consultant? Is it a value-added reseller? Is it an integration partner? Who's going to, you know, let's define that. And that, that can't just be me throwing things at the wall. It has to be a joint component. And a support that and have that conversation around just speak to your customers what what partners are in your customers consistently that are look that are solving problems that you're you can also solve together it's a simpler solution just go and look at that and you'll find some partners there but it has to link back into that strategy about what are we aiming for and then looking at what resources do we have do we have enough material to train and enable our partners are they going to do level one support can we train them you know it's those components that if that's not lined up, it's just doomed to fail. We're going to go and then find some random partners and they'll say about training, marketing, enablement, go to market funds, all that sort of thing. And we're not set up. It's just, it's failing out the gate. So it's that pre-legwork, getting that done. And then like I say, getting, making sure we've got board level, C-level, whatever level buy-in to go and execute against it. Because if that's not in place and confidence there, again, there's just internal blockers, resources will be allocated elsewhere. Okay, you've put these foundations in place. What are the steps that you have to go through before you put a ring on your partner's finger to make sure that they're the right kind of partner? I use different methods or sort of different qualifications around that. So I look at what resources they have, but also, you know, one of those sort of decision-making factors is, is there a cultural fit? Will that partner execute or are they just a, a paper-based you know, they just want to do invoicing. They don't want to add any value and they're not active in the marketplace. So it's around, are they going to invest? Is it going to be a co-invest model? Are they willing to do co-sell initially and then move upwards and then do their own selling, their own support, their own marketing? Whereas the first question they ask, when are you going to pass us some leads? It's that qualifying aspect about cultural fit and are they going to do the work or are they just waiting to sit there and go, pass us some leads, we'll go make some calls and we'll execute. 
that model can work. If you, you know, if you're a company based in London, you want to sell into Israel, you need feet on the on the streets. It's better to have a partner in country doing that, and you need some stimulus to kick it off. But you know, if you're in London, you've got some partners in Manchester. And that's the first thing you ask. It's it's a disqualifier for me. Okay. And what about the difference between resellers and distributors? Yeah, so again, different models. I, I always talk to the companies I work with and the, you know, the conversations are is about those sort of terms and what they mean. And they always say, well, if you want to go distribute distribution model, that's great, but it's not going to happen overnight. If you want to sell to tech data and those sort of global type of partners, they've got so many vendors and X amount of the books, it's not going to happen. It's just too too complex, going to suck loads of time up and you're not ready for it. If you go up through their resellers and start to gain traction, they'll gain interest in you um, around that. So distributors gives you wide volume. They push it out to all their reseller partners underneath. That's great. But you're not in a position to go and execute against that. Many a time, when I was a bit younger, sort of stumbled into that position of trying to push products into, even at Sun, we were trying to push products into, into new distributors to go out to a startup ecosystem. So try to sell eight, eight, six boxes. But that, you know, the contact centers doing it outbound. There's lots of volume play there and there's a lack of attention. If you start with resellers, at least you can get traction and attention and get it moving and prove the model. Otherwise, it's like a SaaS company of 100 people trying to recruit Atos or a large SI out the gate to work with them. Again, unless they've got a solution that solves world peace, it's just not going to happen. Well, again, you know, having spoken to distributors, prices law applies. So if you have 10,000 resellers at that distributor, 100 will produce 50%. Yeah. And so often what tends to happen, particularly if you're trying to grow at scale, then your resources get very, very quickly spread too thin. And you have to be very careful. And you know, prices law applies. The square root of the number in your organization or in your distribution model will deliver 50% of your revenues. Yes. Now, my experience is, and I've interviewed probably two to 300 people around this, is that two to 4% of the partners generate 40 to 60% of the revenue. And I've yet to come across a model where that isn't the case. Now, there may be exceptions out there, but it's a pretty good rule of thumb. And what's really interesting is how often you see vendors rush, this unholy rush to recruit volumes of uh, resellers, which means that your already overstretched channel managers have no bandwidth for coaching, training, development, midwifing deals, building pipeline. And so what advice would you give to companies that are looking at the first time to grow a channel in terms of their courtship and selection and onboarding process? Yeah, so before I answer that, just anchoring back to that distribution piece. So I had the pleasure of working in Microsoft's distribution partner ecosystem for a couple of years. And the amount of partners they have on paper in the CSPs, thousands, is great. And you do some activities with them, like you say, you only find there's a small percentile that are actually driving incremental revenue and increasing it. The rest are just spot deals every now and again have signed up for that spot deal. So it is, you know, it's, it's a numbers game, but it's a hidden numbers game because it's just a small percentage. It's, it's a vanity figure. It's like Twitter. It looks great on paper. You've got 10,000 resellers, tech data, thanks a lot. Microsoft CSPs, actually 1,000 or 500 are generating revenue. The rest are just contracting. In terms of resellers and sort of growing that model out, the amount of times, again, the founders or the organization push back and said, well, surely now we know the partners we want to recruit, we should go and find 100 of them. Or let's go and find multiple ones in different territories so we can expand across Eastern Europe or whatever it is. And again, you have to anchor back and say, no, it's early steps. If you've got a channel manager trying to go a program and revenue and increase that, and he's doing training and enablement, he hasn't got the resources in place, you have to do baby steps and prove it and then start to accelerate it. I am not a person, I absolutely hate it when people say, I've got 1,000 resellers or 500 or 25 million partners because it just means nothing to me. What, what it means is how much revenue is each partner generating? 
What's their upsell? What's their in- what long-term contracts are they bringing in? What's the numbers they're bringing in compared to the contribution we're making from a, a channel manager or the team? That's the most important thing. Anybody that goes into, a, into a, an organization as a channel manager and says, let's bring on board 100 partners, needs taking outside and shooting in the face. Just ridiculous. I'm with you. Yeah. Okay, so what are the qualities that make for a great channel manager? Well, that's a good one. Good question. I think... I think it's patience <laughs> is one thing, most definitely. A master of everything, especially if you're in a SaaS environment rather than sort of standard corporate environment, you, you've got to be training and enablement. You've got to have a... I, I always look at channel a little bit differently from sort of direct sales in terms of channel managers I see as being relationship managers. The building relationships, the developing it with the long-term gain of gaining those sales from those vendors but there's lots of people that I've worked in the channel that are still really good friends of mine that I keep in touch with because we've built a personal relationship. So I think you have to have that ability to build relationships across different cultures and territories and, and that sort of aspect. You've got to be patient and you've got to be very concise and strategically planned out in how you execute and deliver against your, book, your business or build that book of business. I think if you're looking at it in terms of sporadic, you've got no idea what's going on. Um, you don't plan and have a strategy and do reviews and sort of go through and have contact points and execute against that. You're just going to fail. So for me, it's about having a voice, being very patient against execution and being clear and articulate about where you are with what you're developing. But also, I suppose, you know, finally is being a teacher or an explainer. Because you're educating the business most of the time internally on how that revenue is coming through the pipe, how it's being generated, how those partners are growing, and then how you have to build out your team and execute against resources, develop that. So it's definitely multi-skilled and there is no university or training course. (laughs) It's sort of functionally, you learn it as you go along. Interestingly enough, the qualities required to be a good channel manager are more akin to being a general manager than they are to being a sales manager. You need to have the skills of sales management, but it's considerably more sophisticated. And a channel chief is closer to a chief executive than they are to a VP of sales. You have different buckets of activity. You've got strategy and design. You have to find, identify, find, and recruit partners. You have to enable and develop them. You have to be able to uh, drive their behavior through incentivizing them, motivating them, developing loyalty plans. You need to be able to sell, co-sell, co-market, co-prospect, and you need to manage and report. And a huge part of the role is that enablement piece. It's spending 70% of your time in your partner's businesses, working with their sales team, working with their executive team, training, coaching, prospecting together, helping them map their territory, helping map their accounts, helping map pursuits, helping them rehearse. And if you have hundreds of partners, that is impossible. Totally agree. And to me, the measure of success is that enablement piece. Again, I get very frustrated about this. There's certain components I can say and can't say. And the reason I get frustrated is in some of the organizations I've worked in, enablement of partners or the way partners have been treated is as a... The ginger head, bastard, ugly stuff. Yeah, yeah. Just like the, the stepson child with no teeth or, I don't know, just... Oh, God. The best way of describing it is you hire a direct... You know, I may have said this earlier, but you hire a direct salesperson. You give them all the tools for success possible. And your VP of sales and your sales team are like, great. You bring in a channel manager who then brings in partners and they sign a contract, they've got an NDA, they've done everything they need and then you treat them like dirt. It's like, how are we going to enable them? So why don't we bring them into our onboarding as as an organization, train them as if they're a salesperson, give them all those skills and resources so they can be successful. Oh no, we can't do that. No, we can't do that. That's, That's NDA, that's confidential. We can't reveal our secrets. They're a partner. They've signed up. You can't treat them as an outside party. You have to bring them into the organization. So Absolutely. You have to treat yeah. them as if they are your exactly. own. Exactly. And, and why do people not get that? Why do they just not get it? It's common sense. It's like 
give them access to the resources, the materials, the success, if they're doing spiffs, if there's campaigns and activities, tell the, the organization ahead of time, you're going to make a pricing change that's fundamentally going to change the business and then going to impact them. Not on the day you make that change. Bring them into the loop. Oh, God, Mark, because it drives me, drives me crazy. Absolutely crazy. Me too. And again, one of the things that people seem to forget from the vendor side is that you are just one cog in the machine. They yeah. may have a dozen or a hundred partners and vendors whose products they sell. And unless you can let go of your attachment to the idea that somehow you're special, you're going to come unstuck because your job as the channel manager is to help your partners become wildly successful. Exactly. And, that means, and that means selling their entire portfolio of products and services, yeah. even your competitors. And yeah. that is a huge shift. And this is why they get treated like the, um, you know, the yeah. bastard ugly stepdaughter by the CFO and the VP of sales and the direct sales team who see them yeah. as competitors instead of allies. Exactly. exactly. And, and, and the words that come out of my mouth are, and quoted verbatim so many times is, what if they go and reveal our secrets to a competitor? It's like, well, what if the direct sales guy leaves and goes and works for a competitor? What's the difference? Just get on with it. It's just crazy. And you see the CFO goes crazy because he's like, we're giving margin away. No, it's cost of acquisition. It's, on, it's just, what basic maths do you have to explain well, around that? When you think about the amount of hidden cost in direct sales, yes. so let, let's put this into context. So I'm going to give you some mathematics. If you think about the number of leads that you have to buy and then market to to turn into an MQL, a marketing qualified lead, you might, in SaaS, the average is around 28% lead to MQL. Then you have to turn the marketing qualified lead into a sales qualified lead. So on average, your salespeople are going to be, be making tens or dozens of dials. Um, and the average at the moment in the COVID era, uh, period is 33 dial attempts to get through to one effective, unless you're calling a senior exec in IT, in which case it's 46 dial attempts to get one senior executive on the phone. Of those effective conversations, 14 are required on average in order to get one first meeting. And then only one in eight get converted into a second meeting. You've already spent that margin that you're going to be giving away to your channel in terms of the effort to get them to that point. If you extrapolate the maths out, that's 3,240 dials at the low end to get one lead to advance to a second meeting, which means that the rep turned up and actually added enough value to be invited back. Now, given that they do 15 manual dials an hour, you're talking about hundreds of hours sunk. You also need to understand that 75% of all products on the planet today are sold through the channel across all 26 vertical markets. So chances are you already have a channel. You're just not exploiting it correctly. And you are probably a genuinely shit partner. And you give them no reason to be loyal. And what's really interesting is if you treat your partners well, they are loyal to a fault. Oh, yeah. they, they don't mind taking you in and they will push your product over and above something that even gives them a higher margin because they know that if they work with you, their customer will get the outcome that they want. Because they've spent years, decades, cultivating those customer relationships. And you shorten your sales cycle massively yeah. because you're going, if you think of a model and there's you in the center, and then you've got all these lines radiating out to all these prospects. And you might have one or two that are warm and the rest are cold. With partners, what you end up with is a hot relationship uh, with the partner who has a hot relationship to the customer because your hottest customers are the ones who've already bought from you and you can sell them something else. So what you're actually doing is shortening your sales cycle and increasing the probability of conversion and retention. 
Exactly. And, and this is when you're trying to explain this, you're like, no, it's not. It's just, no, it's just simple. Let's like say you've got, you're doing some activity to bring some, doing some outbound activity to drive leads. And that takes a period of time and you get to a point and there's a cost of, quite, of that. And then you get to the sales aspect and then you discount down. So no matter what you're discounting down, okay, great. So there's all those costs. Why, as you say, partners have a book of business already of trusted customers that they can walk into and have those conversations with without all that sort of dialing and percentiles and such. They already know that. And that's why you're paying them a margin to go and do that. And then they add services on top or other layers to make some extra margin from it. It just shortens it down. The deal is done. It's walked through. And, and I've seen them walk over like hot stones to, to make things happen. I had a partner based out in Europe that went to the customer's house at 11 o'clock at night in a snowstorm, it's in like Finland, to get a PO signed because it had to be a wet signature because it was a government contract. Will the direct sales guy do that? Unless the VP of sales is like beating him over the ass. No, the partner was there and, you know, it's just, they'd go above and beyond. And it just, yeah, it just drives me mad when people sort of say about CFOs go, we're giving this margin away. No, we are not giving margin away. Go and do your books, go and do your maths, work out how many headcounts, touch that lead. And that salesperson touched it till it closed and got a PO. And how much do you percent it down? What is your true margin on that? Sorry, rant over. This, well, no, no. Uh, well, I'm going to continue the rant because yeah. it's bloody important. You need to understand what the hidden cost of sale is. Yeah. And the, the hidden cost of selling is massive when you consider all of the stuff I've already described, but then you consider the number of touches that are required between. Um, meetings where you have internal meetings, you have your sales team listening to other salespeople yeah. lying from their work of fiction, also known as a forecast. Then you have the internal meetings with pre sales, with management. Then you might have a three, four, five, 12 touch uh, sales cycle because you're not very good at qualifying out. The number of opportunities that end up in an RFP. The number of opportunities, which typically is around 60%, that end uh, buying cycles that end up in the status quo. And you carry all of that cost. Now, it's really important that the channel manager is firm but fair. And there are very clear guidelines and boundaries against which the partner must qualify before they can suck in your pre-sales resource to do a demo. Yeah. or before you give any form of quote. And discounting is not something that you should encourage your partners to do. And if you have partners who basically phone up and say, what can, discount can you give me? You've recruited the wrong partners. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and the same again, it's like, you know, with direct sales, that qualification process should be really tight. You shouldn't be doing demos unless it's truly qualified that they're going to move through a stage and get there. Partners are really good at this. They don't have the resources to do demos just because it's willy-nilly. It's like they qualify really heavy and do the heavy lifting up front. And, you know, is this correct for you? Have you got the budget, et cetera, et cetera? Right, okay, we'll move forward. And like you say, and you have to have the processes as a channel manager to define where you do allocate resources and then you can see the value from it. Direct sales, it's just, it's, it's another pass off. It's another touch into it. It's like gets them off the hook, off the forecast for another couple of weeks because they're waiting for Bob to do a demo for the customer. I go, oh, that's that's nice and pretty. It's lovely that. Yeah, souls. Yeah, it's great. Thanks. This then raises the question around channel managers being great planners and strategists. <laughs> and I think one of the most important qualities that I've seen with great channel managers is right from the off, during the courtship process, before you put a ring on their finger and you're under contract and NDA, you're establishing the ground rules and you're setting clear terms of engagement. You see this in retail. Retailers have created the conditions where people just wait for the 70% off sale because they know it's coming. And there are more and more of them. They happen earlier and earlier in the year. And if you establish your partnership on the basis that you'll demo at the drop of a pin, you'll give discounts, you'll do fireside sales at the end of the quarter, then you give them the easy out rather than doing the difficult, necessary work. You encourage them to become a, a cost center 
So I suspect you must have heard it a thousand times. We've tried channel. It doesn't work. Yeah. I just want to shoot him in the face again. Sorry. Quite violent. It's just, it's like, yeah, because what you've done. You've been up in Manchester far too long. <laughs> it's just like, because what you've done is you've, you've thrown channel at some direct salespeople person. You've not put any resources in it. You've gone out and found partners like that who just come to you and go, I can close this deal. Give me 50% margin. We can do it, whatever. No qualification. Just what you find is channel partners that are really good are good at selling. They have a, a really good playbook. They've got a strong methodology and they sell on value and the pain points it solves. If they come, you know, if that initial courtship is talking about, do you pass me leads? How much discount do you give? When we co-sell, will you do this? It's like, no, you've got margin. It's your job to go and sell. You sell well. And what you find is if they do really what you, you find those partners that do well and have sales methodologies to do that. If inside the organization already, it's, it's operating on the basis of discount end of quarter, price accordingly, win the deal no matter what, that's just going to pass through to the partners. You've got to, sometimes it can work better in the way the partners come back and help you understand the methodology for your direct sales team. That times when people say, we've tried, it doesn't work. We'll just give margin away. We've got these deals and never came back again. That they're not partners. They're, they're just buying up books of business and just winning deals because it's getting MRR for not doing a lot. It just sits there and they're just, they're just an invoice partner. They're adding no value whatsoever. Well, th this is really interesting as well because I, I see the channel as the toughest, most difficult job there is in sales bar none. And I also see the channel chief as the future chief executive because they have visibility across the entire ecosystem. They have to understand from strategic to tactical, they need to be fantastic at engineering discretionary effort from their own people and from their partners. I'd really be interested in discussing with you then the apprenticeship, the career path that is necessary to become a great channel manager and then a great channel chief. I'd, I'd love your thoughts on that. I think that's an interesting model, Marcus, because I think, you know, you get mentorships and things going through sales, don't you? People, well, people become SDRs, BDRs, and then go at sales and think they've had mentorship. But that's a different conversation. <laughs> But in terms of the channel, you know, true mentorship and an apprenticeship would be a lovely model to follow. Because again, the organizations I've worked with, once I've worked with sort of younger salespeople and they understand the benefits channel can bring, so it can give you a geographical reach, it can help solve service problems, it can drive extra revenue, all that sort of thing. They get it. What they don't have, or what they come to me and say is, where are the resources? How can I learn about this? It's like, um, sort of stuff that you can do, but really you need to be sat alongside somebody that's mature, that has done this for a long time. And the old term when I was working at Sun and Oracle was the channel person was a bag carrier because they just sat behind direct sales and picked up the revenue, which we know is not true. It is the hardest job, but some sort of mentorship or training sort of approach and that methodology, having that in place to bring up and coming people so higher from within and training would be awesome. It's not something that I've seen some like training type materials online, but I, I think that has to be an apprenticeship. You've got to be in there having the conversations and understanding how the language and the structure of talking with a channel partner is different than working in a direct sales and how you also talk internally. Because basically internally, like you say, you're acting as like a, a mini chief exec. You're seen across the business because you're interacting with marketing, services, support, sales all those sort of components of finance, you're seeing across the whole business where a lot of times the business units don't interact together. Marketing sales and the old world still don't sort of work together. But yeah, something around that, I think it's not something I've been involved in or, or been asked to do in a sense. I've always been asked as where are the resources where I could go and learn about this. There's loads of stuff about sales. I can go to sales conferences. I can watch it. In modeling channel partnerships, I think there's a, black, a, a blank spot there. Like I say, I, I sort of fell into it by accident. I think most people stumble into it without realizing it and then they love it and enjoy it and stay there. What was really interesting was when I wrote Making Channel Sales Work originally, the idea was sparked by a one-inch sidebar from Gartner saying that by 2026, 90% of tech would be sold through the channel. 
So I started doing my research because I'd spent a lot of time in the previous 15 years working with tech companies and their partners. And I realized that 70% of sales were happening through the channel anyway, but most people, A, didn't realize they had one. And when they did, they did it very, very poorly. So the salespeople in the channel were not great. And they were not getting the support, the coaching, the mentoring, the training that they needed. They didn't have the tools and resources. The PRMs, the partner relationship management, their partner equivalent of a CRM, was typically set up as a way to feed the audit function, not to help partners sell more. And then I did an Amazon search, and there were 364,000 books on direct sales. And uh, I think it was 273 on channel. So when we wrote Making Channel Sales Work, we interviewed 60, 65 really top of their game channel leaders, channel managers. And it became really clear that one thing that channel managers really never got to grips with were their rights as a channel manager. And then They were set up to fail because they were not ready to be a good partner. And so they went out and recruited willy-nilly. Instead of recruiting a special forces unit, they recruited a land army of conscripts who, as you said, you know, they occasionally produce something. But every time you get um, a request through, you have to pay attention to it if you have hundreds. And so they were massively overstretched. And they all faced the same problem when building the channel, which was the impatient rush to generate results. And then the conflict, the internal conflict that they had to do battle with on a day-to-day basis with finance and direct sales. So it was really clear to us as we wrote the book that the hard work needs to be done in the planning phase, in the courtship, and in the onboarding. And if you do not have a proper onboarding process so that within the first 90 to 120 days, you put the second check into your partner's account, they will go dark and all of that effort and work will be wasted. And you need to work with them on an ongoing basis. It's like washing. It doesn't happen once and you're done. So I'm really curious, again, in terms of when you're kicking off that conversation with founders, what are the must-haves for a founder to even be ready to establish a, a working channel that survives and thrives? Yeah, I mean, you've articulated it well there in terms of that they've got to have that mindset that it's a long-term game. And they need to think about KPIs and metrics. So... I've walked into roles and it's gone, right, okay, here's your OTE, fantastic, and we want you to be successful. So in the next six months, recruit 100 resellers and 50 referral partners. <coughs> mm, what's, so you just want me to get, get some contracts signed? Yeah, because that's success, isn't it? It's like, no. So you know, as a founder, you need, to start, you need to have trust and hire somebody that's mature, that's done this before, or get some advice on, what actually that looks like and what metrics and what components you need to put in place. Because if you're going to talk about that language, it's going to be wrong. And you need to also emphasize and communicate across the business. The channel person coming in and this channel program is the most crucial, important thing we're going to do ever because we're going to invest in this over a long period of time. So it needs resources allocating to it. So marketing resources. Finance can't stop blocking things because there's a dot missing or something ridiculous going through a component. Support has to be ready to support the partner with the questions. Direct sales need to be ready to go and do co-selling with that partner and help them and navigate through until they can take their training wheels off and then go and do it themselves. The business as a whole needs to be educated before you start and ready to support it, not on the sidelines seeing it as some little project that the founders come up with and thinks, you know, it's going to go away in six months. So you need to have that internal buy-in ready and that thinking and methodology around the metrics and then step back and go, okay, channel manager, what is the plan? How are we going to execute? What are we going to deliver against? And let's take this in baby steps and be, and be ready for that. 
And without that planning and strategy and thinking, it's just deemed to failure. It's, you know, I, I don't take on, I don't speak, if, if clients talk to me about hiring hundreds of partners, um, they don't have enablement, they don't have onboarding practices. And again, you know, the, the touch points of a partner manager should be that communication on an ongoing basis, setting up a partner plan and getting that agreed with the partner the QBR and delivery against that and that review to see if we're on plan and what's what's the next quarter, not just winging it and hoping to send him a random order every now and again. So it just anchors back to get that founder to buy the business into it, get them on board, then then start to run it. Because if you've not done that, the guy or the, the, the girl is just going to be floundering and running around and, and trying to do everything themselves. They're never going to do anything. They'll just leave. They'll just go. Well, on that note, the average tenure of a channel manager pre-COVID was 2.1 years. Yeah. That's six months to try and find the lavatory, six months to throw their arms in the air and complain about how crap everything that came before them is, six months to implement a bunch of stuff that they, their partners probably don't want or need, and then seven months to go out on interview and get their CV out. Now, if you think about something really human, which is vendor fatigue. The partner probably has a dozen other vendors on their books. Now, if they're churning every 2.1 years, that means you've got a new partner coming in roughly or a new partner manager every month. And that gets tiring and frustrating because you're constantly starting again, 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 again. My next question is around creating partner safety. In your opinion, what's required in order to provide partner safety? Nobody asked that one before. When you say partner safety, give, give me a little more context. Well, I'm a huge proponent of buyer safety. I fundamentally believe that whenever a customer is faced with a salesperson, they should feel totally safe in their hands. Got you. And the parallel in the channel is that the partner should feel totally safe in the hands of the vendor and the yeah. channel manager. It, it com- yeah, so I get it. It comes back to those insecurities that every partner has around channel governance and longevity of contracts. But also, is you know, from a safety aspect, what that vendor needs to know is that the um, what the partner needs to know is that vendor is investing in channel and driving that and looking for ways to make sure that churn rate doesn't happen for the partner manager, but he's also building that relationship with them further. And that's not just from a resources or co-marketing funds. It's around having strict adherence processes and check-ins around it and making them feel, and it comes back to a point that we made earlier, they're part of the family. They're part of the organization. You know, invite them to have a part, you know, do partner councils and get partners to share their information across each other. There's no competition going on there and what's happening internally. Start to bring them into events and activities around that and make them feel they're going on this journey together with you. And that that partner manager isn't going to churn every couple of years because you me- your, your measurements of success are all aligned. And the partner will feel safe around that. It's a long-term relationship. That's why they've partnered with Microsoft or sort of mature organizations and selling those products for five to 10 years because they're not bound by, right, okay, it's, it's year two. Stuart's moved on. Now Bob's coming in. Bob doesn't like doing QBRs or metrics. Bob likes to do it like this. So suddenly we've got to do that component. So it's having that rigid component as a vendor that the partner manager follows, um, but making that vendor, uh, that partner feel safe by bringing them into the frame or, um, and having input. You know, they, they can tell if the person's not happy or not. This is really interesting because it's made clear in my mind that the seeds to these problems start in the recruitment process of the channel manager. And it requires a shift, in my opinion, Um, in terms of the way you relate to your recruiters. And if you're using external recruiters, my recommendation is that you agree very attractive fees. Don't try and stiff them on 15% a base. Pay 30% of total package, but pay it over two or three years on a monthly basis so that they have a vested interest in staying in touch And I think the whole recruitment model needs to change dramatically. 
Because if you don't recruit well, then chances are what you'll end up doing is recruiting people who are going from job to job to job. You'll also recruit people who are transactional rather than really focused on true partnership, which is about helping the customer be wildly successful and um, helping the partner be wildly successful. So I think the route into the channel needs to be a good grounding in the core skills of developing a good, strong prospecting habit, using technology, learning how to prospect efficiently and not talk about the ugly baby, the product, learn how to do that, move into a direct sales role, and then move into management. You don't have to be a stellar performer. You need to get your kicks and your soul needs to be fed by helping other people to succeed, which means that you have to be obsessive about the customer's success. Once you've done your stint in management, then probably seven to 10 years into your sales career, you might be ready for your first channel role. And there needs to be a proper onboarding process for channel managers, and they need to develop a proper onboarding process for their partners, where Over the first 120 days, they're helping them to build their pipeline. And in fact, my pal, Zach Seltz, who wrote um, a book called Global Sales, he's uh, built uh, channels, uh, over a thousand partnerships across 135 countries. And typically, his partners will grow hundreds or thousands of percent. And the payoff of doing this well is that it's not impossible to get 10, 20, 30% growth. You're going to get 10x, 20x, 30x, 40x. But it does require forethought. It requires planning. It requires incredible patience. And it requires people who actually give a damn about other people's success. And they have to think about that before their own commission check. Totally agree, Marcus. And sort of going back to the recruitment side, One of the things I talk about with clients is that I'll I'll help you with that if you want me to, because you do, you get this sort of, you can get a partner manager that's transactional. They've worked in a corporate, they know how to move pieces of paper around and operate Salesforce. What they don't focus on is growing that customer success because they're a transactional partner manager. So like you say, the the focus for me is some, and and I, I, you know, when I was defining at the start is somebody that's really good at owning relationships and building it, but also going back to, frustrations you know you're you're in a you're in a a vendor you're working as a partner manager the partner's come to you with a deal it's been approved and it's been processed and it's sat in finance and something hasn't been done quite correctly you've got two you know two degrees of distraction going on there uh, away from the sort of core and what everybody forgets is there's a customer at the end of this the customer is buying something from that partner what we're impacting is the partner's relationship with our customer if we do this three or four times, we don't have a partner anymore. Forget it. We'll just be like, you know what? It's not worth it. Not worth it. Referral marketing is that is the person being referred has an obligation above everything else to protect the referrer's relationship yeah. with the prospect or the customer. And in a partner environment, it's even more important because these people talk and you have a moral obligation. They've spent decades fostering and nurturing these relationships. How dare you? How dare you ruin those or threaten those relationships? No wonder that they, uh, people get dropped. So th- this then raises the really obvious question. In fact, there, there was a wonderful example. I interviewed J.D. Delosier, who is the channel chief for 8x8. And a condition of him taking the job was that the chief executive went on a road trip with him for a month, meeting partners. And it opened the CEO's eyes completely. Now, what's interesting is they went from an 80% direct model to an 80% channel model over two years as a direct result of that experience. And they've grown at an astronomical rate. You look at UiPath. UiPath has grown over 100,000% in seven years. Let me repeat that, 100,000% over seven years, and they have a 100% channel model. And 
they are obsessive about helping their partners be wildly successful. I look at Phycotic, 80% of their business comes from the rest of the world outside of the US, and they are growing at 80% per quarter. Jeez. Now, you cannot possibly scale. You can't grow at that level. No. You can scale at that level if you do a good job with your partners, because your partners already have the people, the infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah, you couldn't hire quick enough to grow at that rate and sustain it in a direct model. Whereas, like you say, channel, it's got they have the resources there, they've got the book of business, and they can grow like that really quickly. And that's really interesting about the eight sort of experience because that changes the CEO's thinking about how he views channel and switching from 80% direct to 80% channel over two years. That's a big shift. That's that's a quick time to do that. But getting that payback period is awesome. Well, if you don't develop the basis of trust with the CEO and the CFO and get them to see the real value, then you're in deep, deep shit. Because their paradigm is direct sales, eating into our margin. Now, you can grow at that level, but the problem is you will be compromising on recruitment from day one. And that is a downward spiral. And one of the first rules is you never compromise on recruitment. Exactly, Marcus. It's that. All you end up doing is this quarter, we have to hire X amount of bodies. Just get bodies to fill seats. Yeah, it's a linear growth model. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, right, okay, recruiters just go and find bodies. And like you said, then suddenly the process of making sure they're culturally right, or they go, we don't care. We just need bodies. That's all. And, and like said, it goes downhill. The impact is over a period of time, but people don't see it. And like you say, if is in the sort of channel model, if you don't get that CEO and CFO bought in, you have an impact straight away. Once you've got them bought into it, it makes life a whole lot easier. You can be more constructive about how you operate and get blockers removed. And, and going back to that point about, you know, treating partners and their customers and setting them up for success, it's little things like just, you know, there's a PO held up because of X, Y, Z, or we need to do a credit for $30 and it's taking 12 months. It's just nuances that can be moved out of the way. But thinking the partner and their customers are the most important things in the world. If we get that right and do it really well at scale, we don't have to worry about a hiring problem. We could talk for hours. <laughs> You've raised all the points that really annoy me, but in a positive way that just well, like, it's, it's, just, it's, 20, it's 20 years, it's 20 years. It's like, why can it not change? <laughs> I think it's up to us. The meaning of communication is the one received, not the one intended. And in all our dissatisfying relationships, the one constant is us. So it's up to us. And you know, with Sales of Force for Good, one of the, uh, the work streams we have with people like Fred Copestake, with uh, Zach Selch, me, is to really dramatically improve the way the channel is operated and considered. So I'd love to have you on board with that. Look, we've come to the top of the hour. Tell me this, you've got a golden ticket and you can go back and advise your idiot 23-year-old self. What advice would you give him? 23, I was married. I was my first child. I would say... Keep it in your pants? Yeah, I would say, don't, oh, I can't say don't get married too early. That's really bad. And I am divorced now, but I think I would say reflect more on taking time out of work. If I reflect and look backwards to then, I was very much a workaholic and not taking time out. And I think that impacts you about actually what's happening around you and you can become more educated. That would be my core thing is just looking at that because I think you get ice. What I don't like to be now, and it took me about 15 years to realize this, is being in a a silo and isolate and think that's the world. The world is I'm selling steel or I'm doing this. Whereas you have to have a bigger perspective. And then like you say, we can help educate other people and bring them along on this journey. Daily reflection time is absolutely key. Where people journal or they take their thoughts and they document them, I, I tend to do it in the form of posts. Whenever I le- uh, learn a lesson, I'll typically produce content. And taking time to think and reflect what worked, what didn't work, who does this already, and uh, where can I get help? What do I need to do differently? Stop doing, start doing. Every week, take at least 45 minutes with you, a blank pad, and a pen, and one question, and no interruptions. That reflection is really key. And the problem is that most people, particularly early in their career, but then they become habituated into doing it, 
then forget to take reflection time and you have to slow down to speed up. Exactly. Yeah. It's that you you think you have to be in the office 12 million hours a day and traveling or appeasing other people. You don't reflect back to think what what will make me happy and how can I I be better than I am? What I tend to do now is I'll, I'll go for a walk and I won't have my phone on or take phone calls. I can just walk to the end of the lane and back. It's 40 minutes. And I just zone out a little bit and then I'll come back and start to think and think, right, okay, what, what do I want to do over the next couple of quarters? Where do I want to go? Where do I want to be? Those sort of things. And it helps me just clear that zone out because otherwise it's just, there's so much noise around us and especially being at home a lot and not in the office, it's hard to turn that noise off and you, you have to force yourself to do it. Excellent. Okay. What would you recommend people read, watch, listen to in order to become better educated about the channel? So I'm going to suck up to you. I do like your book. I have read it, but I'm a Kindle. <laughs> so, um, so there's that, that side. Oh, again, oh, will I rant? But the problem we have with a lot of the education material, Marcus, that I see is around, a lot of it is American-centric. I'll say it. it there's not a lot that, that focuses on communities or advice in Europe. And I think, that, again, you know, you're changing that and that's coming to the forefront. So I, I do follow a lot of American type content. I like following, following Jay at Forrester and understand what's happening in the channel space. Yeah, Jay McBain is brilliant. Yeah. His content it, is fabulous. His content is fabulous. He's very clear. He's an intelligent guy and he, and he talks in sensible language. It all makes sense around that. And the other aspect is whether you join sort of communities like partner leaders or those sort of things. I suppose I'm, I'm not an advocate of that. Um, what I would say in terms of listening and, and such as podcasts like yourself where it's focused around channel and it's focused around certain areas like that and start to ingest some of that but make your own informed decisions um, around it i think this sort of question is always hard because people learn and like things in different ways so i like to digest a lot of audio content i did use like reading a lot i need to go back into that again so not not some great visions there but i think the main one is follow jay listen to my educational podcasts that are related and start to make your own thinking. There are a couple of books that I would strongly recommend. Going Global on a Shoestring by Hans-Peter Beck, Global Sales by Zach Selch. And like you've mentioned, look at books around community. Definitely follow Erica Kuhl, K-U-H-L. She was the lady who created Salesforce's community. Many of the values and behaviors and structures and guidelines that operate well in building an effective business community are mirrored in the channel. And also keep an eye out for a book that's being written by Simon Byrne and myself around strategic alliances, which will be coming out later this year. Because strategic alliances are a more informal structure. And that's being modeled on a book called Be More Pirate. The pirates of the 16th century were a very interesting bunch, very democratic. They elected their captains. They had a a menu for injuries. So if you lost an eye, you got two gold pieces or whatever. And what they did was they got very drunk for about a month or two. And then they decided they were going to raid Panama. And there were only 200 ships. And so they went to Panama they bombarded the crap out of it and left with the equivalent of modern-day $30 billion in gold. And then they dispersed. And I think increasingly, strategic alliances and learning how to play nicely with other vendors and even competitors is going to become absolutely key. Okay, how can people get hold of you then, Stuart? So you can find me at... um... It's called Channel as a Service, but actually I'll send the URL. It's channel. I couldn't get that name, so it's channelasservice.com. I'm there. I write blog posts. I write my thoughts on channel, do some podcasting and such and that sort of thing. That's the best place. Or you can find me on LinkedIn as well. Dead easy to find. Excellent. Stuart Townsend, thank you. No, thank you, Marcus. It's been a pleasure. So this is Marcus Cowkey signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you'd like to get a hold of me, My email address is marcus at laughs-last.com or you can direct message me on LinkedIn. Now, if you found this useful, then please like, comment, share and do subscribe, but also share this with somebody who would benefit from learning more about the channel. Maybe a founder who's considering starting a channel 
or somebody who's early in their channel career who would benefit from a little bit of guidance and help. And both Stuart and I will be happy to take calls and emails from them if they have questions. So in the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.